For downloading episode number 51 of the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. On this episode, I spoke with three different entertainers who are doing things on a high level yet on their own terms. And those people are Robert Francis, Taya Valkyrie, and Steve Brown. First up is my interview with Robert Francis. His new album is called The End Times Volume 1, and it came out on June 19th of 2020. This interview was taped about two weeks before that in early June of 2020. The interesting thing about that is Robert knew that his album was coming out, but like most artists, what's going to happen? He doesn't know. I don't know. So we spoke about that uncertainty. On a brighter note, we spoke a lot about his musical influences. Surprisingly, the Jim Blossoms came up in that one and also spoke about how he's mentored by Red Hot Chili Peppers guitarist John Frusciante. Really nice guy I'd never spoken with before. I think you're going to like this one. Hey, how's it going? Great. Right on time. Aside from the world falling apart, all fine by you? Um, same, same. It's, it's a weird time to be talking about, about my music, that's for sure. <laughs> Feels wrong. No judgment on my end because the fact is it's your trade. You're doing your trade. You got people who want to hear it. So isn't that kind of logical? I, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got. I would. I would gotta believe that, right? I think it's a very believable thing, and you do have <laughs> new music to talk of. You've been kind of prolific the past few years. How long was this one in the works for? I mean, this album, the End Times album, was done real quick. So, um, I mean, this, like, I feel like I wrote it when I left Nashville. I wrote the record in like five, seven days. Wrote a couple times when I got home, and then. You know, we ended up tracking it. I think it took end up like five months or six months to track or to basically finish to mix and everything. But that's mainly because we were just me and the band were just like messing around and like not really working that hard. But everything could have probably been done in like two weeks that was spread out over five months. So, yeah. If you're a big music historian like I am, you're somebody who reads liner notes and cares about who plays on records, you know that some of the greatest albums ever were made in a day or a couple of days, stuff by the Beatles and the Ramones and all that. Having done an album this quick, does that at all change how you view doing future albums? Um, yeah, if, if I can do an album quickly, then, then I feel like I've gotten out of my own way, and that's the hardest thing, like, out of, you know, after doing this for like over 10 years, I don't know if it's almost 12 years or whatever. I feel like the hardest thing that a musician can do, um, you know, or a songwriter or even an artist in, in any respect is just like, how do you, how do you finish the project with intent without like, without shooting yourself in the foot or overcomplicating things or losing the message or like, you know, overthinking things. And so, you know, it's usually, if somebody can sort of oversee the album or, or you've got people you trust to just tell you when to stop, 
um, it's really important. I don't know. Cause, cause like, yeah. Cause that's the only way you can maintain like that kind of raw integrity. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's how I would prefer to do them from now on, you know? Yeah. I'd imagine that nobody wants to do take 58 of a song in your case, being such a masterful guitar player beyond the singing that you're going to do, do you track the guitar and vocals at the same time, or at least did you on this album? I, on this album, I, I cut, I try to cut both on the floor, you know, in the room with the band. And then, um, and I went back and recorded my vocals. Like I always try with the vocals. And then, um, and usually because I've written the songs and like, I'm in the studio really quickly, like right after writing them, um, you know, I'm, I'm not like rehearsed as much as I'd normally be. Like I probably haven't memorized the lyrics. So sometimes it's hard for me to like pull off. Um, one thing, you know, w- one part of me wants to like, well, maybe one day you just write the songs, rehearse them with the band for a really long time and then go into the studio when you're really prepared. But then I fear that I'm going to lose some of that like initial excitement um, about recording them, you know? So, so usually I keep the guitar and then um, the vocals I'll, I'll, I'll cut later. That's really refreshing to hear that you don't know all your lyrics right away or anything like that. Because I can think of so many of my favorite songs. I don't know all the words to Hot for Teacher by Van Halen, even though I've heard it a thousand <laughs> times. So do you actually spend time reading the lyrics or how do you usually learn them? It's the process of writing lyrics for me is so like labor intensive and it's really just mostly editing. So, uh, so like I'll write a draft and then I'll rewrite the draft and then I'll rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it until, um, until it, it, it sort of like rolls off the tongue the right way. And, um, and yeah, you know, and and there's always those lyrics that you write and you're like, you kind of second guess them. And, and I guess my friend Jesse DiNatale told me this great songwriter in the Bay Area, you know, he was like, usually if you're wondering about something, if it's wrong, then it's, then it's probably wrong. So like, so my new thing is to like, just mow over anything that is like a question mark or has any, um, yeah. And just try to like make everything as, uh, you know, like just, yeah, just clean it up and. And so, yeah, anyway, by the time I'm done writing that, like, like those drafts, I've almost memorized them because, because that's like, you know, that's like upwards of 30 something rewrites, typing it on the typewriter. So, yeah. Wow. That's really refreshing to hear that you care that much and actually edit and edit. Is it that the lyrics are the last thing that happen, that the music comes first or the melody comes first and then the lyrics come at the end? It works both ways, you know. It used to be melodies first, and then lyrics last. And then um, I think two records ago, I experimented with writing all the lyrics first. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I probably overthink all this stuff, and and especially in this day and age, I really don't think that many people care about lyrics. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I do, and I think a lot of music fans do. But like, you know, I don't think like on a on a major. I don't know. When I, I, I'm not looking at any, like, huge, I don't know, that's not true. I don't want to, like, you know, talk shit on any major super famous pop artists, but I feel like the lyrics are always, like, you know, the last thing that people think about. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of chair in there kind of rhyming in pop music, which, <laughs> which can be draining. Right. 
<laughs> so I've already complimented you on this, and people who know you already know that you're a really great guitar player, and you were taught by some of the greats at a young age, which is incredible to me. But something that really grabbed my eye in my press release is it mentioned that you reconnected with the Jim Blossoms, liking the Jim Blossoms in recent years. And to me, that's always been one of the most underrated bands when it came to mainstream kind of music. Would you agree on that one? Yeah, absolutely. And it was weird. Like, there was always something that kept me from listening to the Jim Blossoms because maybe, maybe I'd like, in the back of my mind, I thought they were like a kind of, like, I don't know. I never gave them the time of day. And then, and then I was sort of like in the tour bus. Um, this is when I was playing bass for Ry Cooter and we were doing like an overnight drive. And I was like, you know, like what music have I not really like, what, what have I missed? You know, what, what, what's the like, and so I kind of went through the gin blossoms and that sort of like that whole era of music. Um, yeah. And they're like, I don't know. I, you know, trying to go and sort of like being inspired by that and then trying to get into the studio and sort of like have that sort of be, um, like, you know, the, the, I don't know how I'm trying to explain this, but basically like having that in mind and then trying to recreate it is way harder than I ever expected. (laughs) (laughs) To me, I think the Jim Blossoms were kind of a cleaned up version of Big Star. People don't really make that connection where these are poppy songs and meaningful songs, but they're a lot heavier than everyone realizes. Right. Right. Totally. Well, and I love like, you know, just the, you know, where like, you know, where those records came out of and the whole like that label and studio and, you know, Memphis and all that. So pretty rad. Arden and Memphis are great indeed. And another part of your background that intrigues me just like anybody is the fact that you studied with John Frusciante, not to make this all about John or anything like that, but he's managed to be one of the only people in mainstream rock that's kept up a mystique that's mysterious and we know almost nothing about the guy. Is there anything that you could share about him besides the fact that he's also a great guitar player that we'd be surprised to know? Yeah, I mean, it's been so long. Like, when I took lessons from him, I think I was 16. Um, and so, uh, what, one of the things that kind of blew my mind when I met him was that he was taking algebra lessons again so he could learn how to use his modular synthesizer that he'd just gotten because something about algebra and the modular synthesizer like you have to know this to be able to operate it in the right way or something. So, um, you know, but it's, it's pretty much exactly what you'd expect. Like, you know, like as a kid, I was like losing my mind when I went over there and he's always got, he's got all the guitars laid out like against the couch, like the entire collection and all the vinyl and the speakers and the vinyl, like the record players sitting on the carpet in the living room. And yeah, it's pretty cool. That is exactly what I want to hear. <laughs> that yeah. he's an actual artist doing artist kind of stuff. So bring it back yeah. to you here. Like everyone else, you're kind of at home going, what am I going to do? When's the world going to open up? Is there anything that is on the books that, you know, for example, you're going to Europe in January. Is there anything that's actually confirmed? Nothing is confirmed yet. And it's it's a trip. Um, and that's why I sort of decided to get this album or out 
now because like i don't know part of me part of me wonders like when next year rolls around i mean i'm already writing these songs and i don't want the song to feel old and so yeah i mean there's nothing i mean people have like my agent and i have like tentative plans and we've made sort of tentative like like a sort of roadmap of what we expect it to look like but um for the most part it's really up in the air is ultimately the plan to just do what you're doing in the near future or have you been rethinking the plan a little bit of well maybe live streaming kind of stuff and instagram content is going to be a big part of the future of course if i talk to 10 different people i'm going to get 10 different answers on that kind of thing right i i hope not i mean because if, if if the Instagram, if the live streaming world is the where it's headed, then I'm going to probably find another job. I mean, <laughs> it, it's so hard to, to do these live streams. And I mean, the lag even like that, like whatever it is, like a five to 10 second lag from when you ask a question or finish a song and get any sort of like response from the people on the other side. Like even that, like that is just always throws me off. And the whole thing is just, I don't know. It's just like you can't win. Like, you know, I've been doing this with my, like, trying to do these live streams and the, the guy who's releasing my record, like, he's trying to get me to prepare for them a lot. And so, and he's trying to get me to get the right microphones for them. And we're trying to do them, like, you know, we're trying to make them, like, do them well. And no matter how much you prep for them, something always goes wrong. Like, your internet always goes out. The mic always starts wigging out. Like, you know, the, it's, it's just crazy. So, yeah, I hope live music comes back. I mean, maybe there will be more outdoor concerts. That's my thing, like where you can kind of be spread out more and there's air that can like circulate. So right. that sounds like an answer. Yeah. But in your case, it's great that you got your start young. You got a taste of the major label system young. You kind of learn what not to do as a grown-up. <laughs> and it yeah. seems like... You, unlike a lot of people, if you can just get through the next couple of months, that things are going to be fine, that you are a journeyman of a songwriter, whether you're playing with other people and or doing your own thing, that you have three or four things that you'll do and pull together that'll always keep you float. Right. Yeah. And that's why the major label thing, while it was really fun and like quite a ride and, um, and I regret none of it, uh, I think that sort of like whatever that route is to that most major label artists like go through where they sort of, you know, whether you're like the biggest artists, like even like Coldplay or Adele, like, you know, the, the amount of rec- like I write so much, so many more records. I don't know. Like I couldn't imagine like having like this much time in between records and, and like focusing on, I don't know, I just need to keep writing. And that's like the only way that I can sort of like deal with what's going on in the world. So, um, yeah, so that's just, uh, like, as long as I can keep writing, I think I'm going to be okay. Um, you know, from a personal standpoint, at least. Hmm. Again, I like your honesty with all this. So two quick questions and then you are a free man in the, First one is, since you're holed up like everyone else, is there any television or film kind of discoveries that you can pass along to say, this is great stuff and you should be checking it out? Yeah, um, The Plot Against America, that was a killer uh, series on HBO that David Simon did, the dude who did The Wire. Um, I thought that was pretty brilliant. 
Um, is that is that what you're asking? Like, what what's a good show to watch? Absolutely. I think you just gave me one I never heard of, and I did watch The Wire, and I know about Treme, but I think we're in such a niche-oriented world that there could be something that 10 million people watch, but 290 million in this country didn't. Yeah. No, you would, yeah, you're going to trip out. It's, it's really good. I mean, it's, just, it's like a miniseries, so um, that was great, for sure. Great. So I'll ask you the standard closer now, and that's any last words for the kids? Um... Last word, uh, okay, for the kids. Um, I guess, I guess to everybody out there, I just, I'm just feeling for everybody right now, and feeling for the state of the world, and and I guess if if, if I wanted to say anything to anybody out there, is to like, to not buy any of these distractions, you know, like that these these sort of immediate protests that are going on right now are we're like for a real cause and there's a lot of distractions and a lot of eluding and a lot of things that are like stealing spotlight from what's really happening. And, um, that like, you know, um, to just sort of stay, stay true through these, throughout the distractions. And, um, you know, hopefully we can all pull together and get through this time. Well, thank you very much for not only doing this interview, but as I said, doing the artist thing, putting out music and pushing the ball forward. Really do hope to see you live in New York sometime soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. Next up is my interview with Taya Valkyrie. Taya has been one of the top female wrestlers in the world for the past decade, but there's so much more to her than wrestling. For example, she started up a fashion line called Loca. Loca, does that mean crazy? Yes, it does, but that ties in with her wrestling name. It's an interesting streetwear company, and while we are talking about an upcoming June 2020 event that she was doing on Instagram Live, we did dig in about her education, why she pursued that part of fashion, all that kind of stuff. Very interesting, interesting person who clearly is destined for big things when she decides to retire in wrestling. Taya, good afternoon there. Is it afternoon where I'm speaking to you from? Yeah, I'm in LA, so it's one twenty-five. <laughs> Got it. Right on time then. Okay day so far, aside from the world kind of imploding as of late? Everything's good over here. We've been up early with our with a new puppy that's about four months old, so I'm having to get up nice and early <laughs> with him. But everything's good in Slamtown. Well, congratulations on the new movement that's going on with Loca. Great name for a company. How long was it from saying, I want to have a fashion line to actually having stuff designed and slotted for release? It's been a lot longer than people realize. Um, And everything kind of came about. So I've been a fashion student for the last uh, six months um, with the Art Academy University out of San Francisco. I've been doing that on the side um, while I've still been working full time. And I've the reason I decided to go back to school in fashion is because first of all, I was absolutely, I love fashion and costuming. And I think that's pretty evident in how I uh, represent myself as my character in and outside the ring on impact every Tuesday. Um, so I started going to school because I wanted to eventually start a brand and a lifestyle brand or, you know, and I hadn't really thought about exactly the details of it or what was going to happen, but it was just kind of like, okay, in the future, I want to do this. And then the uh, pandemic happened <laughs> And all of a sudden, I found myself with a lot of time on my hands because, as we all know, TV productions and, um, you know, professional wrestling and indie scene and all that absolutely completely went to a halt. So 
I just said, you know, I, I need a creative outlet. I'm a very creative person. I was just trying, I needed something to occupy my brain and my creativity. And I decided to just start thinking about doing it. And I got a logo designed and I knew exactly what I wanted it to be pretty right, you know, pretty right away, pretty fast. Um, just based on my personal style as Kira outside of being Taya. And um, so that's pretty much what it is. It's a, it's a comfy um, lifestyle and streetwear brand that is just in its starting stages. Obviously, this is so new to me and I'm still learning as I'm going along. And it's been extremely difficult just based on the fact that things like the fashion district in Los Angeles is closed. And I'm very excited that it's finally open to like getting wholesale and doing that kind of stuff was just overcomplicated due to like the circumstances of the world, obviously. But I've been able to, you know, work with a company here in LA and I work with a lady who, whose hand does all the masks and I hand dye every item myself. So every single piece is different. So even though you might all have, you know, I'll have like 50 pink sweatshirts in the Malibu color scheme. Yes, they're all the, the color, the same colors, but they are all actually different because of just the way that dyeing works. Um, so every single piece is unique to itself and everybody will have a piece of me because I put a lot of sweat and thought and effort into this. And this is just one other layer to me. And I'm excited that now I'm able to share it with everybody. And June 15th at 12 p.m. Pacific time, we're doing the next launch and restock with new products and everything on tyavalkyrie.com and I'll be live on the Instagram for Loka starting at 12 p.m. talking about all the new stuff and uh, and the website will be live. So I invite everybody to check it out right now because all the pictures of the new products are up right now but you can't order yet. Um, tyavalkyrie.com and just I really am excited for everybody to, to keep growing with me and my brand. You're such a pro that you just answered pretty much my next three or four questions about it. But <laughs> when in the whole process did the name Loca come about? Because as a person that speaks remedial Spanish, I know that means crazy. But mm -hmm. did you have the name first at the beginning? Well, I mean, my nickname in professional wrestling, as everybody knows, is La Guera Loca, which was given to me by Pero Guayo Jr., uh, eight years ago, and it stuck with me through every layer of my career, from Mexico to Lucha Underground, to in, and now an impact in the Indies, um, and that's basically where it comes from. I There's like a bunch of ways I like to describe it. It's really just a mentality to me. I feel like people often get labeled as crazy when they're just passionate, or when they're um, inspiring, or they're just like, they just have all these, create like a creative genius, or they have, you know just they're very motivated you know and as a woman guess what we get called crazy a lot <laughs> when we're outspoken when we have you know some ideas are outside of the box and I've done a lot of that I got a lot of ideas that are outside the box my whole career has been outside the box um and so I think that that's what it is it's a state of mind it's a way of thinking and I think it's it's for everybody, you know, and I want people to really think of like what makes them crazy and what what is it that makes drives them to be nuts about whatever it is, you know what I mean? You can be loca about anything, honestly, and I think that that's what it represents. And people who follow Loca on social media, even though it's about a month since it joined Facebook, will see Laurel Van Ness on there. Are we going to be seeing more people from Impact and related to Impact wearing the gear? Well, these are my friends that all. Um, are wearing it and I just did a photo shoot within some of the new products and you'll see that 
Famous B and Beautiful Brenda from Witch Underground were on there. Um, you know, Matt and Chelsea have been on there. Uh, it's just, and those like people that are buying my stuff because guess what? My stuff is cool and <laughs> I'm proud of it. And I'm so thankful that my friends like it too. And it's, it's showing through the pictures that I get sent from, from everybody. And I, I always ask everybody who buys uh, my clothes and I always feature them on, on the website and on the Instagram and Twitter you know, hashtag Chica Loca or hashtag Chico Loco. And I, I will share all the pictures of everybody wearing everything. So you should definitely check out the Instagram at Loca by Taya Valkyrie and on Twitter at Loca by Taya V and you'll see everything up there. And back to Impact, you had a great match on the program this week. Is there any chance we'll ever see Jordan Grace, though, wearing Loca gear? <laughs> I mean, uh, if I let her, no. <laughs> I mean, you never know. It's a sporty streetwear. And guess what? Jordan Grace is pretty sporty. I think that this label is for everybody. And it's really a representation of me even outside of my wrestling perform- per, um, persona. Um, so I, it's really, it's for everyone. And, I, and I'm just happy that everybody feels comfortable in it. And it really makes me smile when I see all different people from all different walks of life wearing my clothes that I made. So... I'm just, I'll be thrilled, (laughs) no matter who wears it. And you are back on the hunt for the Knockouts Championship. Did winning that title the first time change your life in any way? I think it was a validation and kind of like that moment of like, okay, you know, just, it's one of those things I always wanted to accomplish, you know, who doesn't want to win the biggest prize in, in women's wrestling and impact wrestling, you know, and I worked very, 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 very hard. I know that I have only been wrestling so, like, so to speak, in the U.S. for a certain amount of years, but people need to do their research about me and realize that, like, the amount of sacrifice and time that I spent learning different styles and living in Mexico and exposing myself to different, having different teachers and being in Japan and, and doing all these things, like, I really know that I worked hard and I deserved that opportunity, and I, and I ran with it, and I think it proves that I... I'm really good at my job and I'm passionate about it in the way that I became the longest reigning knockout champion of all time and the longest reigning champion in all of impact history. And I will go after what is mine. And I know that, you know, that knockout title belongs with me. La Loca. It's funny to me about you that you grew up in Canada. You kind of came of age as a wrestler in Mexico and now you live in the States. So you've been all over all parts of North America. Has that irony ever come to you? Yeah, because I I get all the time, like, people will say really ridiculous things, like, why do you speak Spanish? You're Canadian. And I'm like, listen, <laughs> first of all, a very ignorant comment. Secondly, I consider myself, I mean, my family, my dad is from Switzerland. I am multi-everything. I feel like I represent North America, if anything. You know, I have all these layers of who Taya is that are from all different places, and uh you know, I, I just, I, I take and look back on it sometimes and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, would I ever let my daughter do that, <laughs> you know, in the future or like whatever, tra- like travel to the country where she didn't know anybody, didn't know the language. And she's like, I'm going to stay here because that's literally what I did. Um, and it's just, it's crazy, but like, it's all just kind of played out with, you know, through hard work and sacrifice and, and craziness. And I'm just proud to represent an entire continent because I do feel like that. I feel like I represent all of North America and people are like, people try to label me as this or that. And I was like, I'm North American. (laughs) 
That is one of the nicest answers I could have gotten. So thank you for that. And as you pointed out, longest reigning champion, and you've held the championship longer than anyone, no matter the title and impact per se. Is there anything in your wrestling career you haven't accomplished that you're still hoping to one day? Uh, I would absolutely love to, you know, just continue winning championships, no matter if it's labeled for a championship as a woman or labeled as a man. I don't think it makes a difference. I've wrestled every type of human, you know? <laughs> so I, I feel like I deserve an opportunity to go after either the world championship, the exhibition championship. Why is it, why am I not, why are me and Rosemary not allowed to go after the tag championships? Why are they not, you know, why don't we bring back the knockout tag championships? Yeah, there's endless, you know, opportunity for me to continue to grow. And I feel like I've, as much as people are like, oh, I've accomplished a lot of really crazy things in my career, I still feel like I have so much more to show. Wow. Uh, I think you just gave me the headline right there about bringing back that title. So two quick questions, and then you are free. And the first one is, what's the best TV show or movie that you've discovered from being quarantined and being home a bunch more than usual? Oh my gosh, someone asked me this the other day, and I felt like I was like, I mean, I have been watching way too much reality TV. <laughs> As John calls it, garbage to garbage TV. Uh, but no, on, in all honesty, I've just, we, we like, for example, and this isn't a new show, but like we watched the last season of Ozark in I think like two days or a day. The new Netflix series Hollywood we watched in like a day. I was like, we need to do something better with our time <laughs> but it's really honestly like it's just been like i don't know i've watched way too much rupaul's drag race i watch way too much like 90 day fiance yeah it's bad but also it's fun at the same time and all of us have been doing it together if i discuss it with my friends we'll get on zoom and we'll have these lengthy discussions about these ridiculous characters in these shows <laughs> but it's that's pretty much what we've been doing first movies i can't like think of anything specifically off the top of my head but i've been watching a lot of older stuff um we actually had like a little movie club with john's family for like the last seven eight weeks where we watched movies from um all the different decades and and stuff like that so it's been good kind of revisiting old classics as well so in closing taya any last words for the kids i just want to say thank you everybody for continuing to join me on my crazy journey and this crazy business which is professional wrestling and also for supporting me in my new ventures and uh just want to invite everybody like i said instagram on june 15th at the at loca by taya valkyrie account i will be live there might be a few appearances from my husband and friends on there as well so you want to join in and i'm going to show everybody all the new products as well as um everything that's restocked on the website and you can go there now tayavalkyrie.com and check out what will be available june 15th at noon Congratulations on the almost launch. Looking forward to watching it on the 15th. And really, thanks for your time. Keep up the great work you're doing. Uh, thank you so much. Outrocast. Last but definitely not least is my interview with Steve Brown. I think Steve is the second two-time guest I've had on the podcast. I spoke with Steve a couple of months back while I was on the Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea cruise. The Chris Jericho cruise, wherever you want to call that one. Steve was on there as a member of Rubik's Cube, an 80s party band that is just really, really fun. But Steve is probably better known for playing lead guitar, producing, and or singing in a bunch of different great bands. First, he was part of the band Trickster. He's been filling in for Def Leppard on lead guitar duties at times. 
He's played with Dennis DeYoung from Styx. He's still in the band Danger Danger. Steve is one of those guys that is just so great at what he does. He's able to juggle all these gigs and still turn down a lot more gigs. Beyond all that talent, really funny, really pleasant person. I think this was the third or fourth time that I met him. That comes up pretty early into the interview. Not every day that somebody that you interview remembers that you interviewed them before, especially if there's somebody who's been around 30 plus years of doing interviews and touring and all that. I really hope that there's a third time that I speak with Steve. We go a little bit off the deep end towards the end because we're talking about Van Halen and David Lee Roth and Kiss. And that's kind of targeted towards a new podcast that I recently launched. It's called the DLR Cast. I co-host it with Steve Roth, who's a great new friend in the Minnesota area. So you're going to hear part of this chat on that one. Sort of like a crossover episode of one of your favorite sitcoms in the 80s or early 90s. Anyway, Steve Brown. Hope to have him on a third time. Think you're going to love this one. Aside from the world falling apart, Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, brother. I'm doing good. Um, you know, wow, what a what a what a difference the world has. Uh, what a difference of a world we're in since we were on the Jericho cruise. Yeah, when people talk about life before COVID, I have the distinction of going. You know, the last concert I went to before COVID was you as part of Danger Danger, <laughs> and then. Two before that was seeing Rubik's Cube like three times on the Jericho Cruise. I know, so right? Somehow I go from never seeing you to live to too much right before COVID. Wow. Uh, I know Rubik's Cube did a, a broadcast the other day, but what was the last gig you played before COVID? We did, I believe it was what, uh, March 13th? The, um, what was that, th- Saturday, right before everything went, but it was either the 13th or the 14th. We played a, a private party in New York City at the cutting room. And it was like, I could tell, looking back on it, seeing my friends, my buddy who owns the cutting room, seeing mm-hmm. his face, I knew shit was bad. And then the next day, it was like, boom, everything's done. Yeah. Well, on a much brighter note, new music from Tokyo Motorfist, which is probably the most rock and roll name imaginable. Who came up with the name? I, I don't think anyone's answered that one before. Well, I mean, who do you think came up with the name, Darren? <laughs> me, me, me. I'm the name king. Trickster, Throwing Rocks, Soaked, 40-Foot Ringo. Come on, you can't forget that gem. You no, know, I'm, I'm like, forget that computer program band name generator. Anybody out there who wants a cool name for their band, send me an email. Only $1,000. Don't worry Only a grand? <laughs> Not so bad. Yeah, yeah. The name Tokyo Motorfist. That's a, I get I get asked that question a lot. So here's the truth in it. I'm I'm one that's big for rock and roll names. So Trickster. Right. You, know, you got Forty Foot Ringo, which is my great band from the early '90s. PJ and I and Maz and Brian Gabriel. You got Throwing Rocks, Soaked, Stereo Fallout, Sugar Belly, my cover band from back in the '90s. You know, I'm known for these great names, and so you know, I had to continue the tradition, right? And um, so it was really simple, man, just coming up with names. I always, I have a notebook and I, in my computer, I'm always, anytime I hear something, you know, my daughter goes nuts because I always go to her, I see things, that's a great album cover. Or I go, that's a great name for a band or that's a great name for a song. So here, here it goes. Here's the story. So I had to come up with a name when Frontiers wanted Ted and I to join forces with Greg and Chuck Berge 
for yeah. what is now Tokyo Motorfest. What is the name going to be? So I'm like thinking, you know, I'm trying to combine all the things in my life that I think will sound cool. So Tokyo, <laughs> Japan, Japan is one of my favorite places in the world yeah. to go to, to play. I've been fortunate enough to tour there twice and it's just a magical place. So Tokyo, that was cool. Anything with Tokyo in it to me sounds cool. Yeah. You know, Tokyo tapes, um, you know, tune in Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then the other thing was, you know, I got to give a shout out to my, you know, our old dear friend, Lemmy, who's up in heaven, Motorhead, pretty much the coolest name in rock and roll and heavy metal ever. You don't really get much better than Motorhead. Gene yeah. Simmons even admitted that to me. You know, I, I was at a Kiss concert a couple years ago and I'm wearing a Motorhead shirt and he goes, Steve, I got to buy that trademark. I want to have Motorhead. Everybody wears Motorhead shirts. They never sold a lot of records, but they've sold 50 million shirts. And I go, well, you work on that, Gene. Um, I'm sure if you go to the, I'm sure if you go to the, uh, the, the rainbow, let me, will be sitting at the bar. You can talk to him about it. So it was easy. Motorhead, Tokyo, let's put motor in it. What's cooler than motors, motorcycles. You know, there's always something like that. You know, back in the tricks today, we were big motorcycle guys, Harleys and dirt bikes. So Tokyo yeah. motor. And then, you know, what's going to give it that rock and roll thing? The fist, Tokyo motor fist. And I like wrote it down and I was like, you know, I usually laugh at everything. And I'm like, man, this is fucking cool. It's weird as hell. Cause you know, people go, what is that? Some weird sexual thing, to a Tokyo motor fist. You know, they come up with all different, you know, kind of connotations and they, you know, their, their idea what it is. And you, a lot of dirty people out there who think terrible thoughts. So clean up your minds. It's not that, it's not that deep. This is rock and roll. It's fun. And that's what it is. Tokyo motor fist. I gave it to the guys and I said, here's the name of the band. Everybody's like, that's kind of cool. I like it. Send yeah, it to, definitely. send it over to the frontiers and they, and they loved it. So I sent it over to the art director, the guy who did the art for the first record. And I told him, this is kind of what I want. I kind of want the name and the engine. And he can't, he did the perfect logo, you know, and it was just, it's a no brainer, man. And it seems to resonate with everybody around the world. It's just a, kooky rock and roll name and, and it goes perfect with our wacky sense of humor and i think it goes great with our music because our music is very powerful of mm -hmm. course it reaches the worldwide everybody loves melodic hard rock like we do and uh you know and it's definitely a conversation piece so there you have it before i ask you about lions is it a coincidence that Chris Jericho's wrestling group or stable was almost called Fist instead of the Inner Circle? Uh, you'd have to ask Chris about that. I, I know nothing about that. I, you know, look, man, you know, I'm definitely a very influential person, Darren. So, right. <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I'd probably, I'd go with that. I'd go. So, I'll, yeah, Chris, you stole that from me. Mm-hmm. Fist, you okay. heard it first. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, Chris is one of my dear friends. I love him. Love him like a brother. I love him like a gig pig. Gig pig. <laughs> I can't top that. Um, okay, back to lines here. How long did you actually spend writing it? I'm gonna say I started writing the record right at the beginning of uh, right at the beginning of 20, 2019, uh, You know. Um, you know, as usual, you know, winter time is kind of the time when we all hibernate. So that's a great time to make records. I'm home a lot. I'm always in my studio here. As you can see, I got analog tape machines, cassette tape machines. I'm always working. So I never stop. But, um, 
the funny story about how the record started, and this ties into PJ and Eric Martin and, uh, you know, Chris Jericho, of course, and Joey Casada, is that we were going to do a record, PJ and I, we were going to do a record with the Eric Martin thing that we had, the Eric Martin mm -hmm. trick. And um, so, uh, you know, we were kind of like, PJ is like, come on, you got to come up with some ideas. And the first thing I came up with was the song Youngblood, which originally I wrote it for Eric in this thing we were going to do together. You know, Frontiers was interested, but for some reason, Eric didn't want it. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to finish the song because I had finished the whole song pretty much the way you hear it on the Tokyo Motor Fist record, right. the original version that like I sent to Eric and it all it had was young, you know, the chorus, the Youngblood part. But I finished it off. I sent that, you know, that I don't make demos. I pretty much fin make oh. a finished mix of the song with me playing everything and singing everything. And, and I sent it to Ted and Ted basically jumped through the phone and he said, this is the greatest thing that I've ever heard. This is the greatest song. And I'm like, boom, we got a new Tokyo Motor Fist record and we were off to the races from that point on. So January of 2019, and that's when we started. And, um, I'm going to say I pretty much wrote the whole record in two months and we were recording, I think by March or April of, of 2019. People who follow rock, the great, great musical genre of rock, uh, too much rock for one hand. Yeah. Know that Frontiers is kind of synonymous with classic rock artists and also all-star kind of projects. Yes. And given that you guys all have real deal credits, do you like being thought of as an all-star band? I prefer to be called Supergroup. Oh, um, that's really you know. I mean, yeah. All Star. I, I've been an All Star for thirty plus years, and we we know that already. But <laughs> semantics. Ah, uh, come on, kids, winking a smile, winking a smile. I don't want to see the comments. Who does Steve think he is? Blah blah blah. No, um, I would always go to bat to say that Steve Brown is a star because you never stopped working. You've worked with so many high profile artists. You've been on the road with the high-profile artists. Uh, A-list Rolodex, I would argue, as well. So by proxy, if you're not the star, you hang out with the stars. So that kind of makes you like on The Simpsons a stonecutter, but with stars. Whatever the fuck that means, I'll take it, Darren. It's very cool. Again, like I always say, I'm blessed. I'm one of the luckiest guys in the world. You know, we all know that. But um, uh, so where are we going with this? I lost my train of thought at that. Well, <laughs> um, oh, 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 super group. Super so, yeah, group yeah, yes. getting back to the super group. Yeah, we're, we're a super group. It's not, you know, between Ted Poley and his reputation, you got the great Chuck Berge, who's a legend of, you know, way more than I am. I mean, that guy's resume is like, you know, yeah, I played on the first half of the bon, first Bon Jovi record, played with Hall and Oates, played with Blackmore right. and Rainbow, you know, been in Billy Joel's band for the last 15 years, played with Paul McCartney on stage, all the people he's jammed with, you know, it's, it's pretty impressive. And then Greg Smith, of course, on bass guitar, Alice you know, Cooper. Alice Cooper. Yeah. Uh, there's a great uh, New York band, Americade, which most people don't know that he was actually in for a little while. It was a big influence on me as a kid. And, uh, you know, Alice Cooper, Ted Nugent, Rainbow as well. You know, we have the Rainbow Connection, a big Rainbow Connection. Rainbow in Connection. Which, you know, Chuck and Greg both were in a version of uh, Rainbow together. And right. I played with Jolyn Turner for a couple years. And so it's just, you know, it's an awesome thing. And the cool thing about Tokyo Motor Fist, much different than most of these so-called supergroups, projects, if you will. Tokyo Motor Fist is a real band. 
you know, first off, we played multiple shows, not just one show or two shows. We played like seven or eight. So that makes us like, you know, in, in super group years, when a super group does more than two shows, that's like 10, that's like a 10 year lifetime. Yeah. So we're like, we're like, you know, we're already a decade old as far as super group age. It's kind of like cat years or animal years. Yeah. And, uh, or, or I like to say fist years. Oh, 50 so, years. Okay. But we're, um, again, we're a real band. You know, of course, we make the records here at my house. You know, we do some remote recording, but, you know, T Ted was here doing his vocals. And on the last record, Chuck did his drums in my laundry room over there. But uh, this year, he decided to do it at his own place. And it works out great. We just love each other. And the, it comes through on the music. And most of all, it comes through when you see a Tokyo Motorfish show you see the chemistry that we have, the love for each other. I mean, right. we're, we're like brothers, you know, brothers that fight like cats and dogs, but we're like brothers. Well, one of the difficult things about interviewing you in particular is you never know how many projects that Steve Brown has simultaneously going on. If, if I'm talking to say Ted Nugent, it's like, okay, well, he's got a new album, a new tour, but there's no real side project. Maybe Damn Yankees every 15 years does something. Still now, waiting on that. Still waiting on that, like many people. But in your case, is there a Trickster? Is there a Tokyo Motorfest? Is he playing with Dennis DeYoung? Is he playing with Eric Martin? Is he, who is he playing with? Is there uh, other stuff going on, or at least in talks, and you don't have to reveal if it's secrets right now? Well, I mean, the bigger you forgot Def Leppard, of course, you know, and I'm, I'm going on eight years now being in the bullpen with them. You know, I'm always yeah. on call with Def Leppard. As we know, I'm there within, you know, hours notice. You know, my first trip with them in 2013, I got a call at five o'clock in the afternoon that you're going to be on a plane at nine o'clock out of JFK to fly to France. You know what I mean? And that's the way it is with Def Leppard. So I'm always with them. We were, you know, we, of course, we all know what happened there. We were slated for, you know, the stadium tour with Motley Crue, Joan Jett and Poison this summer. And that's postponed until next year. So that that's out of the equation. But I'm always, you know, the phone is always ringing. Um, and again, you know, there's lots of bands that I haven't even been mentioned that I'm that I've gotten calls about bands that I've turned down and other bands that I can't mention big bands that have called me to fill in for them. And um, that's sort of over the last seven years since Def Leppard, that's been sort of my thing. You know, I did it with Dennis DeYoung. And again, there are numerous bands who've needed me that uh, it just hasn't worked out yet. But um, that's always it. And again, here I am in my studio. So pandemic, you're looking at analog tape machines. I've been transferring and preserving the trickster history, my own personal musical history, transferring analog tapes to digital, transferring my old, here's trickster Japan tour, 1993, getting all this stuff digitized because, you know, as you know, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of the debut trickster album right now. And that's, that's fucking scary in itself because it makes me feel so old right now. Vintage. 30 years, man. Wow. And I, I go to my, I, I tell my daughter, I'm only 25 years old. Well, how can that be if you have a 30-year-old album? I go, I don't know. <laughs> but um, so there's always something going on. Look, you know, I make no bones about it. This is what I do with my life. This is what yeah. I love. I love being in the studio. I love, you know, Mutt Lang is probably one of my biggest influences in music. Mutt Lang, Eddie Van Halen. You know, uh, you know, Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, 
you know, that's what I do. I love being in the studio, writing songs, doing what I do as much as I love to perform live. So being that I haven't played a gig in three months, you know, my attitude was instead of sitting around eating ice cream and getting fat, like a lot of people, it was like, man, I'm going to go to work here. So I've been writing songs. I wrote some great, you know, I'm always writing for other people. So I'm always working. And that's, that's the great thing. And the cool thing about it is it, at this point in my life, I'm blessed enough, had enough success to where money doesn't dictate what I do. I do what I want because I can. And that's the best part. That's why I say, you know, you wouldn't believe the amount of things I say no to. And it's a beautiful thing that I'm able to do whatever I want. If I want to wake up and I say, all right, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to transfer a bunch of my old throwing rocks, D88 tapes, you know, right here in and spend a day doing that. I can do that. I can do whatever the fuck I want musically. And that's a, you know, that's, that's a blessing. And it's like, man, I won the game in a, in a matter of speaking. Well, one question about that. And then I want to take this to DLR territory. And yeah. the question is, you started off with the big record deal. And most people who are not in the music business who are just fans, they kind of think that the end of the rainbow is getting the record deal, not realizing that's kind of the beginning of the rainbow. And that's when the work really, really starts. And then inevitably, just about every band gets dropped or, or breaks up and then kind of figures out, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? And you have made lemons into lemonade, to say the very least, because you have all these projects and gigs and you're getting calls and work. But was there almost a point when music almost went to being a part-time hobby evening thing and not your future? Never. It was never a moment, never since I've been eight years, since I was eight years old when I started playing guitar, Darren, this is all I've ever really wanted to do. I mean, I grew up as, you know, uh, grew up in a big athletic family. You know, my dad was a semi-pro baseball player. My brother was an all-century baseball and football player. I was, I was a great athlete as a kid, man. No, you know, I was, you know. But I realized very early on, first, that I'm not going to be six foot two and 215 pounds. And music just, music took over everything in my yeah. life. You know, and I, I tell people all the time, 1978, Kiss Rock and Roll Over and Van Halen won. Those two records completely changed the course of my life. And it's been a course that I've been on. You know, I make the joke all the time. I sold my soul to rock and roll in <laughs> 1978 and never looked back. And I'm cool with it. I'm still running with the devil, if you know what I mean. For sure. Now, there is that video of you hopping on stage at Madison Square Garden during the 5150 tour at all. No, that was OU812. The OU812 tour. My apologies. Yes. Now, one question that does not get answered in all the comments to that, did you get roughed up after you got pulled off stage? Not at all. Not at all. And that was part of the reason why I did it, because here's the, here's the funny thing. If you watch the video of that full show, Gus, our drummer and trickster, you know, when Gus, when he was skinny, he, uh, he jumped up on stage before. We had front row tickets. Our old managers and trickster, the one guy was a ticket scalper, ticket broker. <laughs> so he would always get us the best tickets for the show. So Van Halen, of course, my favorite band. You know, Steve, here, here's an early Christmas present. You're going to go to Van Halen, stand in the front row. And we did. And we were literally, like, standing on the stage, like my foot was on the railing. You know, yeah. we were all... And then during one of the songs, Gus jumps up and he runs right over Alex's kit and he's banging on the drums and we're cracking up like, oh my God. 
He gets taken off by Zeke, who is Eddie's tech. He comes run up, grabs him. And next thing you know, like two minutes later, Gus is right back with us. We're like, oh, my God, you didn't get the shit beat out of He's like, no, man, they just brought me out here. And that was it. And so that got my wheels turning. And I'm like, Eddie, Eddie was literally, you know, four feet away from me at times. And I'm like, this is it. It's now or never. Listen, man, Van Halen wrote the song, Might As Well Jump. So I took the initiative. I said, I, there's not going to be a moment in my life that I'll never get like this again, not knowing what was going to happen to me years later, becoming friends with Eddie and whatnot. But, you know, for that moment, it was just there. And I waited and it was at the end of rock and roll. And I saw a moment and I just said, fuck it. My buddy, Jim DeSalvo, one of my best friends who's not with us any longer he pushed me pj was there they pushed me up people fell back and uh i got up there i ran right up to eddie i'm like let me play your guitar and he fucking was you saw the video he was cool he let me in and i started doing one of his flicks and watching sammy and mike come over i forgot about that whole part and then sammy goes that's a bad mofo because he knew i could play like he could hear it you know i wasn't just some idiot he saw what i was playing i was playing real licks and uh, after the show, my buddy Jim, he kept saying that. He goes, Sammy said, you're one bad mofo. And he was like, that was the greatest thing. And what was funny about that, I had been searching high and low forever for a picture of that or the video. The guy who posted the video years ago, he didn't post the full show. So it wasn't until we did this Izzy Presley thing that um what's his name um the bass player for the atomic punks we started talking about it and he was like he messaged in dude it's on youtube and we fucked so i was like i couldn't believe it there it is there it is proof to everybody who didn't believe it you know and then three years later i'm sitting in the dressing room with sammy and eddie at the meadowlands arena on the uh fuck tour the 91 and Eddie goes, this is the kid who jumped up on stage at the garden, you know, on the OU812 tour that played because by that time, Trickster had sold a million records or whatnot. And everybody, you know, Eddie and I were friends already. And so he told the story to Sam and he was like, he's like, oh shit, I remember Zeke telling this story. And it's just, you know, finally it's documented. And I couldn't be happier, man. It's just one of those magical nights. I still have the ticket stub from the show too. Wow. Yeah. Now, were you always a Dave guy and a Sammy guy? Because you just said Van Halen's a favorite band, if not the favorite band. Yeah, I, Van Halen is, you know, Kiss Van Halen, Def Leppard, of course, you know, they're everything. And, but Van Halen is, Eddie Van Halen is the reason why I do this, why I still do this, you know, here. Why I'm here and, you know, one of my biggest supporters, oh. you know. Um, there's no, everybody knows that. And I see the EDH strap on the head there too. Yeah. 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 That's my <laughs> little one I'm recording. I need to use that sometimes, but you know, it, yeah. Van Halen has always been the band, you know, Kiss was my first introduction, you know, my first concert in 1979 Kiss, but Van Halen was the band when I saw them in 1982 on the Diver Down tour. That was the moment that I was like, this is the kind of band that I want. Kiss was so unattainable. When mm -hmm. I saw Van Halen, I was like, this is what I want to do. Because it was like a party. It was a rock show. Mm -hmm. the music, Ed's, Edward's musical, you know, his playing, the volume, David Lee Roth, Michael Anthony, Alex. It was just everything that I wanted a band to be. And that's what, when I started Trickster in 1983. It was basically to, you know, to be a mini Van Halen. You know, and so... Yeah, that, that was the be-all, end-all. But the Sam and Dave thing, I mean, look, 
Uh, of course, the early Van Halen is near and dear to me, but I love, you know, the Sammy era. I love 5150. I love it all. You know, I really can't, you know, and for me, you know, part of the Sammy era is very important because that's when I met Edward for the first time and became friends with all those guys, man. I, you know, go to Eddie's house and fucking go to rehearsals. So I was friends with all them. Sammy was great to me. Michael, Alex, you know, I mean, it was crazy. You know, as a little kid, you know, and again, people ask me this all the time. Did you ever think that you'd be playing with Def Leppard? Did you ever think that you'd tour with Kiss? Did you ever think that you'd hang out with Eddie Van Halen? You know, uh, when I was eight years old, when I was 12 years old, probably never in a million years would I dream of it. But as life goes on, that's what it is. You know, yep. you you work yourself. I worked my ass off and still work my ass still off. Still do. These, for these opportunities and yeah. I'm, these guys, these guys aren't, you know, as much as they're my idols and stuff, they're my friends. You know, when I see Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley backstage, they don't treat me like a fan and I don't treat them like good. They're my friends. I'm friends with these guys. Eddie Van Halen, we do, you know, it's the same thing. And, you know, going, you know, Phil Collin is like family to me as the Def Leppard guys are. So, you know, but as a little kid, you know, wow, what I, you know, when I held up, the pyromania record. Could I ever have imagined that I'd be on stage playing photograph with them? I mean, it, it's mind blowing. It really is. And again, right. it goes back to what I said before. You're, you're all looking at one of the luckiest guys in the world, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't without 20,000 hours of work and, right. and, the, and, and putting in the work and being, being legitimate, being the real deal. And that's uh, certainly what I am. And are you a fan of Sonrisa Salvaje? What is that? That's uh, Edom and Smile recorded in Spanish by D.L. Uh, you know what, man? Not, not, not so much. I mean, I don't, I don't have it. I do love Edom and Smile. It's at, well, Skyscraper's actually right over there. But no, I, I've heard it, you know. But yeah, they, I'm not really a big fan of that. Um, and nothing against. I love Spanish food. I love Spanish people. I love everybody. So, you know, I know we're in very sensitive times right now. So no disrespect to the Latino community. I wasn't good in Spanish. You know, <laughs> uno, dos, tres, cuatro. That's as far as I got. But, uh, you know, I love me some paella. And, uh, but yeah, no, man, I'm just a huge fan of the Eat em and Smile record. I mean, again, you know, Eat em and Smile, 5150, I love both those records equally, you know, and so there's all love there. I love all things Van Halen, you know, and I'm still, you know, look, man, Dave has been rough over the last couple of years and kind of how his ship has kind of sunk a little bit, you know, seeing that he's now an opening act for Van Halen. I mean, for, for Kiss, Kiss yeah. and, you know, but I got to give him credit, man. Dave is just one of these guys who just, it's what, this is what he does. And I think Dave, you know, and I've opened for Dave with 40 foot Ringo. We did some shows with him and the guy, this is what he does. And I don't think he gives a shit. I don't think he has anything to prove to anybody. And we can all rip on him. Look, man, we all know he doesn't sing like he used to. He never really was the greatest singer live. You know, and even in the studio, all those vocal lines that he did were fed to him pretty much by Ted Templeman anyway, you know, so it is what it is. But to me, back in the 80s, David Lee Roth was the greatest frontman, barn, and anybody who was there and saw him, he was the greatest there ever was at that for, the, for, the, for that short period of time. Well, then two quick questions, and then you're a free man, or at least you're doing more press after this. Oh, well, I'm a free man. Okay. <laughs> First one, have you ever seen the Dave concert 
uh, Live from Finland 99. It's an MTV thing on YouTube. Yeah, with Bart, well, the late Bart Walsh playing guitar, and Bart was a cool guy, so God rest his soul. But yes, I did. And top-notch him in top singing form, uh, I must say. A lot of people get on him that he was never the greatest singer alive, but he totally had it going in the late 90s. Yeah, well, I think it was out of necessity. And I think, Dave, you know, I, he, gets, he, he gets a lot of slack on this last run that he was doing because I got to see him when they played in Allentown right at the beginning of February. Greg Smith and I went out to the show. And I thought, he, I thought he, he, you could tell he's putting in a lot of work sure. to really try to do his best. And, um, you know, what can I say? I mean, look, man. Dave, you know, there's a great story. It's been documented, but the first, when we were recording the first Tricks record, the first week we got out to California, we were at this famous club, Bordello, and they had a big Thursday night thing where everybody was hanging, and we were there. And, man, I remember it like yesterday. We're standing there, and somebody knocks, you know, one of the guys said to me, dude, there's David Lee Roth. And there he was, man, the fucking guy that we all in trickster i mean van halen was what we modeled ourselves after there he was he was in all leather and we went up to him and introduced ourselves he was so fucking nice to us i know also he gets a bad rap but he was so nice we told him we could just got a record deal well that we're out here making our first record and i told him i said it's because of you and ed that we're here and that we're get we got this opportunity and he just said to me he shook my hand he said well Good luck to you, Steve. And I'll never forget that, man. And and so whatever anybody wants to say, and hey, I'm guilty of it too, man. You know, look, I, I'm a little, I, I get a little tired of seeing a lot of these old rock stars, especially singers who can't measure up and they're fucking lazy and they don't do vocal exercises. Guys don't warm up. There's no excuse, man. Especially when you got McCartney out there at 78 years old, still yeah, kicking ass. Yeah. Mick Jagger. I mean, did you hear the last, the new stones fucking song? It's awesome. Great song. Guys, great video. Yeah. They're fucking 78 years old and they're still wow. killing it. So when I hear guys in their sixties that are complaining about their voice, Fuck, shut the fuck up. Get out there, work harder, man. Like Phil Collins told me, man, you know, and Def Leppard was a great, you know, motivator for me, especially over the last couple of years, getting in shape, being in the best shape of my life. I'm going to be 50 in two weeks, man, and I'm in better shape now than I was when I was 21 years old. So, and that, a lot of that goes to Phil Collins and Def Leppard. But he always told me, he said, the older you get, you got to work harder. And I believe that. And guys like Phil Collins, even Joe Elliott, Joe Elliott, 61 years old, guys fucking singing better than he ever has. And, you know, it's just one of those things, man. You got to put the work in no matter what age. So, you know, there you go. So Roth, I think he was really, if this tour would have kept going, I think by this time he would have been in top form. Okay. And the closer, Steve, any last words for the kids? For the kids. Wow. Oh, kids. That's right. Now you're really making me feel old. Uh, all I can tell you is, hey, you're vintage. You're not old. You're vintage. That's right. Oh, I love you. I love. I'm that. That twenty bucks is in the mail. <laughs> uh, the message: Tokyo Motor Fist, the new record Lions. To me, this is the greatest music that I've ever made in my life as a producer, a writer, guitar player, singer, all the all the above, Ted, Chuck, and Greg as well. This record is the melodic hard rock record of the year. It's the melodic rock guitar record of the year some of my best guitar work i cannot wait for everybody to hear it and the message of lions is the most important thing i wrote the song lions a year ago we have the great dennis de young playing on it plays a great incredible keyboard solo but the message of it couldn't be more 
poignant than it is now in the way how fucked up the world is, how messed up the world is, especially our country. We need people to be lions. Stop being sheep. Be your own person. Be a young blood. Follow your dreams. Make things happen. If you want things to change, you have to make it, make it happen. You can't sit around. Don't be an armchair quarterback. Get out there and make it happen. And most of all, everybody, stay positive because that's the ultimate message of Steve Brown. Since I was a kid, I wrote songs about positivity, dreams, you're only young once. That's the way I live my life. You live it that way and you'll have a better life for yourself and for your family. And that's what it's all about. So Tokyo Motor Fist Lions, that's what it's all about. Couldn't have said it any better myself. Hope to see you on the next Jericho Cruise or Long Island or New York, wherever you are. Thanks for your time, Steve. Yeah, man. Keep up the greatness. Thank you, Darren. Thanks for all your support. Paltrowcast. Thanks for checking out the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. Produced by V13 Media. Theme song by Steve Schiltz. Audio mixing by Mark Pirro. Until next time, have a great Shabbos. Paltrowcast.